Now in this sutta, each of the great disciples of the Buddha has been presenting his view of what kind of monk can illuminate this beautiful solitary forest. And we were discussing last time in paragraph 7, the venerable Maha Kasapa. As I mentioned last time, <coughs> venerable Maha Kasapa was the <coughs> disciple of the Buddha who was outstanding in the observance of the ascetic practices, the Dutanka. So when he was asked what kind of monk can illuminate this Gosinga solitary forest, he said that this is a monk who is a forest dweller himself and speaks of pray in praise of dwelling in the forest, one who eats only alms food, food that he collects by going on alms rounds himself and speaks in praise of doing so, one who wears only robes that are made from strips of cloth that are gathered and collected, strips of discarded cloth which are sewn together and dyed. It is one who doesn't accept ready-made robes or even robes made from new pieces of cloth. And he is one who uses only the three the minimum of three robes, the under robe, the inner robe, which is called the Sivaru, ordinary Chivara, and the Sangati, the double thick robe, which is used in cold weather. And also he will use a bathing cloth when he takes a bath, but apart from that he will not make use of any other robes, even of the kind made allowable by the Buddha. Okay, and so the purpose of undertaking these ascetic practices is to create and to reinforce and strengthen certain inner qualities which are conducive to the meditative life aimed at Nibbana. Basically, the meditative life aimed at Nibbana is concerned with overcoming tanha, craving. And usually people in the world have cravings for many possessions in the world. Everybody likes to have very a wardrobe full of very beautiful clothing. <laughs> so the men will have many suits, women will have many saris and dresses and the fashion designers and clothes manufacturers are aware of this strong drive of tanha and so at least in the United States where we have four seasons there will always be the fall fashions, winter fashions, spring fashions, summer fashions. <laughs> I don't follow the clothing advertisements in Sri Lanka, but perhaps always they're changing the styles from season to season. Then there, are, I remember there were, used to be different color combinations when we were going to school. One year, one particular color combination is the in thing. Then suddenly the next year, 
if you come to school wearing that color combination, everybody looks at you as though you had sprouted a third eye in the middle of the head or had a pair of horns. <laughs> Suddenly it's out of style and you have to buy clothes of now it's no longer orange and brown but now it's green and blue, whatever. The styles are always changing year by year, season by season. And so people always have to have many clothing, much clothing of different styles. And everybody likes to have a very nice house with many rooms, very comfortable and always well situated and to eat a variety of delicious foods. Then people want to have now cars, televisions, tape recorders, computers, um, video players, all sorts of possessions. And it goes on and on, always new inventions are being discovered or created. In the past we used to listen to the music on the phonographs, now then the phonographs went out of style and then the cassette players came into style. Now the cassette players are going out and the compact disc players are coming in. And so always the possessions, the possible possessions are just proliferating constantly. And all of the manufacturers always are trying to arouse one's desire for more, to provoke this tanha and always trying to discover new possibilities of arousing the interest and desires of people in order to sell their products. And somebody like a monk like Mahakasapa is earnestly and fully devoted to the practice for overcoming tanha. And so he wants to develop within himself certain essential qualities which are spoken of in the Buddhist texts as being easy to support light and living in the Metta Sutta, like the phrase, Subhrocha Lahutta Bhutti. It is being easy to support and being very light in one's way of living being content with whatever one gets, being content with the simplest, the most basic of requisites. So somebody like Mahakasapa doesn't need any of the appliances of contemporary technology. He doesn't even need a very fancy dwelling place, but he just will live in the forest either in the simplest puri, in a cave, under, at the foot of a tree, just content wherever he happens to be. He doesn't even accept invitations to the houses for meals, but he's an alms food eater who just contents himself with whatever he can collect on alms food. And if he practices the more austere form of collecting alms food, then he makes no discrimination between any houses. 
This is called Sapadana Chara. It's the practice of going from house to house. Even if one knows at a particular house the people don't give or give very little or give poor quality food or give without special respect and special deference, you will just go every day door to door to the same, well, to one house after another without skipping any houses. Sometimes those who want to observe this practice in a very austere manner will maybe make it a principle not to go to more than, say, seven houses or ten houses. So if they go to ten houses, seven houses, and they get just two or three spoons of rice, that's it for the day. If seven or ten houses, they get a bowl full of food, then they'll just take what they need for themselves and give the rest away. And so he is one who observes this alms food eating practice. And when he collects his alms food, then he's not concerned to think, ah, this curry I like, this one I don't like, this curry has a very <laughs> nice flavor, this one is too sour or too bitter, let me put it aside. But generally what the monks like this will do, after collecting everything into the bowl, taking the amount that they need, in order to cut away even the interest and special tastes or flavors, they'll just mix everything up together just into one mixture, stirring it all together so that there's no possibility even of discriminating. Ah, <laughs> this has the flavor that I like and this one I will leave aside. But it just all becomes uniform. And he eats the alms food mindfully, not thinking that the flavor is good today, today the food is not so good, but thinking that I just use this alms food to support and maintain this body and to lead the holy life. And when he eats the food, then he will be practicing sati sampajanya, that is mindfulness and clear comprehension. So when he takes the food, he'll be aware of taking, lifting, putting the food in the mouth, chewing, tasting, swallowing. Each step will be discerned with mindfulness and with attention. And then instead of being concerned <laughs> with having many clothes and a variety of styles, he will just be wearing whatever robe he can put together by collecting pieces of discarded cloth, wearing this robe made out of rags. And he'll be content with using only the simplest, the minimal, the minimum allowable of three robes. And so by observing these ascetic practices, he will help to strengthen within himself 
this very important quality of nekama, of renunciation, of withdrawal from the attachments to the things of the world. And this will provide a very solid foundation for developing the insight which can overcome craving. By practicing the ascetic observances, he becomes content with whatever he receives. The mind is no longer disturbed by gain and loss, by comfort and discomfort. He becomes easy to support so that others, he doesn't create hardship for others, a burden for others, but just he's satisfied with whatever he obtains. Okay, now Mahakasapa goes on to speak further, to give some further words about the ideal bhikkhu. He is one who has few wishes himself and speaks in praise of having few wishes. This is called apichata. He's having few desires, few wishes. And he is content himself. This is santuti, the quality of being content with the simplest robes, alms food, dwelling place. And he's one who speaks in praise of contentment. And he is one who is secluded himself. That is, he observes the quality of viveka, taking a resorting to a secluded dwelling place. And he speaks in praise of seclusion, that is, he encourages others to lead a secluded life. He is aloof from society himself, as he doesn't mingle with worldly society, but keeps aloof from it and speaks in praise of aloofness from society. Okay, those are all internal qualities now which are born of the observance of the ascetic practices. And then with that foundation of inner virtue, of having few wishes, being content, dwelling in a secluded place, being aloof from worldly society, then he applies energy to the development of the mind. And he speaks in praise of arousing energy to others. And this arousing of energy this becomes the basis of the qualities to follow next. The next set of qualities that Mahakasapa refers to form a group which are called sometimes the five aggregates of Dharma qualities. This is not like the five aggregates of clinging. The word is the Pancha Dhamma Kanda. 
which are virtue, concentration, wisdom, the deliverance and the knowledge and vision of deliverance. So he is one who has attained to virtue himself. In the case of a monk like Mahakasapa, it's one who observes all of the precepts of the Patimoka as taught by the Buddha. And he is one he is one who has attained to concentration himself. This is Samadhi. And the Buddha himself praised Mahakasapa as being a disciple who was a master of all of the eight attainments, the four jhanas and the four formless attainments, which make up samadhi. He is one who has attained to wisdom himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of wisdom. This will be the wisdom of vipassana, the wisdom of insight, and also the wisdom of the higher stages, the supramundane wisdom. all the ways up to the wisdom of arhatship. And through that wisdom he attains deliverance or liberation. And he speaks in praise of that attainment of deliverance. And he is one, he is one who has attained to the knowledge and vision of deliverance and speaks in praise of the knowledge and vision of deliverance. That is when one achieves final liberation, when one attains arhatship, then there arises immediately afterwards a kind of knowledge or realization that one has fully comprehended the Four Noble Truths, one has destroyed all the defilements and one is utterly free from bondage to the round of rebirth. And so that knowledge of final liberation arises in the Arhant. And Mahakasapa praises the bhikkhu who has that knowledge of final liberation. And thus, then Mahakasapa concludes by saying that such a bhikkhu as this, that kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, so that's the explanation of Venerable Mahakasapa. Then after Mahakasapa speaks, then the other monks all applaud his statement. Then Venerable Sariputta turns to the Venerable Mahamogalana and asks him to state his view on what kind of monk could illuminate this solitary forest. 
<coughs> okay, I'll give now a little background talk on Mahamogalana. It's a little, I have to say, the answer of Mahamogalana is a little atypical since Mahamogalana was the disciple who excelled in the ability to exercise the psychic powers. I mentioned last time when I was speaking about the development of certain qualities, the abhinyas, and the first, the first of the abhinyas is what is called iddhi vidya, or simply iddhi, which means psychic power or spiritual power, powers which seem maybe incredible to the hard, materialistic, empirical, scientific mind. It's the ability, having this one body with an active will, one can divide this one body into many bodies. And so, while I'm sitting here talking, maybe somebody in town will see me at the same time walking through town. Somebody in Colombo might be meeting me in Colombo and talking to me and somebody in even other countries might be meeting me in other countries. And yet the people check out and say, where was Venerable so-and-so at that time? And each one insists that he was there. <laughs> Sometimes the texts speak of the ability to show even many bodies in the same place so that while I'm sitting here with an act of will, then the room might be filled with 10 or 20. <laughs> and then, having projected these many bodies, to bring them back all together so that there's only one. Some other psychic powers, the power to go right through a wall without being hindered, to go through even through a stone mountain just as though the body were made out of air. The ability to become invisible at will. One makes the decision and nobody can see you. And then one can reappear whenever one wants. The ability to sink into the earth as though it were water and to reemerge the ability to walk across water without sinking as though it were solid like the earth. The ability, the Buddha says, also to fly through the air just like a bird sitting cross-legged. So one can, doesn't have to schedule plane flights. <laughs> But one can travel wherever one wants, just by an act of will. And even to reach to other worlds, just to stretch out the hand and to reach to the moon, to the sun, other planets, and to travel with this body to other planes of existence. If one wants to see the beings and the health, then one can, through a determination of will, 
one can see the hells, the hungry ghosts, the sphere of the pratas, the hungry ghosts, the heavenly worlds, the Brahma worlds, all of those different worlds one can visit even physically with one's body. And Mahamogalana was the disciple who excelled in that ability to use the psychic powers. <clears throat> and so therefore Mahamogalana played some important roles in the during the life of the Buddha. He defeated the dragon, the Naga king, Nando Nandopananda. And several times he was involved with, in battles with super, supernormal beings, supernatural beings. And he was able to defeat these beings through his psychic powers. And so one would expect, I would have expected Mahamogalana to speak in such a way about a monk who has those powers. But for some reason he does not speak about such a monk here. Instead, he answers Sariputta by saying, Here, friend Sariputta, two bhikkhus engage in, in a talk on the... The actual Pali word used here is Abhidhamma, which we've translated higher Dhamma. And they question each other, and each being questioned by the other answers without foundering and their talk rolls on in accordance with the Dhamma. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Yeah, here I should maybe enter into a little digression. The word used that's rendered higher Dhamma is the word Abhidhamma. Though I don't think we should understand this to mean that the Abhidhamma that comes down to us in the Abhidhamma Bhittaka existed at this time. The expression Abhidhamma comes in a few places in the Sutta Bhittaka and interestingly wherever it occurs it's not used in reference to the Buddha speaking on Abhidhamma, but always it occurs in the context of disciples discussing Abhidhamma. So this seems to suggest that at, in the earliest period of Buddha's history, Abhidhamma did not mean the fully formalized system that comes down to us in the Abhidhamma Vitaka and in the later commentaries and in the Abhidhamma Sangaha, but rather, I mean, there's some question among scholars what did Abhidhamma mean at this time? And I think the findings that I find most convincing. I base it on the researches of a Japanese scholar who's written on this topic. I don't even remember his name now, but he has a very good book on the early Abhidhamma. And he argues that at this time, Abhidhamma would have meant 
a kind of minute analysis of the different dhammas or factors of experience that had been spoken by the Buddha himself. The Buddha frequently used in his discourses abhidhammic type categories, like he spoke of analyzing experience into the five khandhas, the five aggregates, the twelve ayatanas or sense bases, the eighteen datus or elements, and he spoke about the different classes of practices like the four foundations of mindfulness, the five spiritual faculties, the seven factors of enlightenment. And so all of the different aspects of these teachings were called dhammas, the aggregates, elements, sense spaces, and so on. And I think that the disciples, when they would assemble together, must have engaged in discussions about the nature of these different dhammas, how they should be analyzed, explained, understood, what their different relationships were. And I think that the kind of conclusions that were that emerged from these discussions the conclusions that emerged from these discussions were what the text refers to as abhidhamma and i think it's from these types of discussions and the attempts of the monks to codify the teachings and to analyze them in very precise detail that the Abhidhamma Viteka eventually developed and um, became finalized into the fully the systematic Abhidhamma teaching that we now have. Elements of existence and they can question each other and reply to each other without hesitation without meeting any difficulty in the questions and the replies. And so he says, this kind of bhikkhu could illuminate the Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, and so now at this point, all of the monks have given their replies except for the one who is asking the questions, that is, Venerable Sariputta. So now the other monks turn to Venerable Sariputta and ask him, Friend Sariputta, we have all spoken according to our own ideals. Now we ask the Venerable Sariputta, the Gosinga solitary wood is delightful, the night is moonlit, there's beautiful moonlight streaming through the forest, almost as bright as the sun, and the trees are all in blossom so that flowers can be seen, maybe petals of flowers are falling to the ground, forming a little cushion of flower petals over the forest. 
and beautiful heavenly scents are floating through the air. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Sariputta, could illuminate this Kosinga solitary forest? Now, Venerable Sariputta also answers somewhat in an atypical way. Venerable Sariputta was the disciple who was praised by the Buddha as the one who was outstanding in the faculty of wisdom, prajna, panya. And he was the one who tradition, the Theravada tradition, in fact, actually the traditions of all the early Buddha schools associate Sariputta very closely with the Abhidhamma. He was the one who was able to take any of the topics introduced by the Buddha and analyze it in the, using the Abhidhamma method into very, very fine detail and to set out very subtle relationships between all of these subtle aspects of the teaching. We've already discussed in earlier classes, we had the Samaditi Sutta spoken by Venerable Sariputta, in which Venerable Sariputta explains the different types of karma, the Four Noble Truths, the different aspects of Paticca Samuppada. We already discussed the greater discourse on the elephant's footprint simile in which Venerable Sariputta gives a very Abhidhamic style analysis of the Four Noble Truths. And so Sariputta was the disciple who excelled in this analytical wisdom. But he does not answer in the way we would expect. In fact, I would expect Sariputta to give the answer that Moggallana gave, that the ideal disciple would be the one who can ask questions and give replies on the Abhidhamma. But Sariputta was also a monk who had extraordinary mastery over the meditative attainments. And there are, there's a series of suttas in which Venerable Sariputta is shown entering any attainment that he wants to and dwelling in it as long as he wants and then emerging from it exactly when he wants. And so instead of taking as the ideal a monk with the faculty of analytical wisdom, he presents as the ideal a monk who has this mastery over the meditative attainments. So he says that here, friend Moggallana, a bhikkhu wields mastery over his, over his mind. He does not let the mind wield mastery over him. In the morning, he abides in whatever abiding or attainment he wants. He wants to abide in during the morning. So in the morning, say in the very early morning, maybe he knows that 
he has to go after sunrise for Pindapata and so he doesn't want to go into any very deep samadhi <laughs> since the mind would become too calm <laughs> too collected to want to go for Pindapata so he might decide to sort of just go into a rather shallow attainment maybe into the first jhana and so he'll enter into the first jhana and just remain in that at midday he might enter into any abiding or attainment he wants to abide in at midday and in the evening he would abide in whatever abiding or attainment he wants to abide in during the evening. In the evening, since there is no further obligation, and if he masters all these attainments, then he can go into one of the Arupa attainments or Nirodha Samapati. I should just mention these abidings or attainments we should understand these as being the they could be the four jhanas or the four formless attainments those are the regular mundane attainments of samadhi then somebody who is an arahant would also be able enter to enter into something called Nirodha Samapati. That's a special meditative attainment where the entire mental process of feeling and perception stops. That's accessible only to anagamis and arahants who have mastered the eight mundane attainments then an arahant would also have access to another special attainment which is called the arahata pala samapati the attainment of the fruit of arahatship this is a meditative attainment in which the arahant is able to have direct experience of nibbana And somebody who has complete mastery over these attainments, according to the statement of Sariputta, according to the phrase that Sariputta uses, he would be able to enter into these attainments whenever he wants, without any trouble or difficulty. He doesn't have to make any exertion for them, any struggle or striving, but he just sits and makes a mental determination, let me enter the first jhana, the second jhana, let me enter the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness. And as soon as he makes that that determination, the mind just goes one, two, three, and he's absorbed into it. 
then he's able to remain in it as long as he wants. If he wants to remain in the attainment just for a few minutes, just to sort of refresh the mind, then flip, he goes in and he'll remain for, if he decides, two minutes. As soon as the second hand completes two turns, then he comes out. And he comes out without any difficulty or confusion, not wondering where am I, what happened, but when he comes out, he's just in complete possession of himself. If he wants to stay in for two hours, then he remains in for two hours, and as soon as the two hours are up, even when it's one minute, one, one hour, 59 minutes, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, he doesn't come out. 50 seconds, not out. 55 seconds, not out. 56, 57, 58, 59, not out. But <laughs> as soon as the second hand hits 60, then he's out. <laughs> Perhaps I'm exaggerating, I don't know. <laughs> but there is that ability, according to the determination, then one comes out. So one enters whenever one wants, one enters whatever attainment one wants, and one emerges whenever one wants. Everything is done easily without any struggling or striving. Then Sariputta uses a very colorful simile, well, literally a colorful simile, to illustrate this point. Suppose a king or a king's minister had a chest full of variously colored garments. In the morning, he could put on whatever pair of garments he wants to wear in the morning. At midday, he could put on whatever pair of garments he wants to wear at midday, and in the evening he can put on whatever pair of garments he wants to wear in the evening. So just as a king or a royal minister who has so many suits of clothing can change them whenever he wants, and put on whatever suit he wants to wear. So this monk with mastery over the mind is able to enter whatever meditative state he wants to abide in at any time of the day or night. That kind of bhikkhu, Sariputra says, could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, now 
after Sariputta has given his answer, the monks say that we've all spoken our own views on this matter. Let us now go to the Master, the Blessed One, and report this matter to him and find out what the Buddha has to say about it. And so they all agree to do this and they go to the Buddha and report to him what the discussion that had taken place. And I'm not going to read what the Buddha said in reply through the, um, the earlier passages. Basically what happens, we'll just take one example and we'll skip the others. When they explain the way Venerable Ananda replied, then the Buddha said, that's good, very good reply. And Ananda, speaking rightly, would speak just as he did. <laughs> then the Buddha sort of lets the cat out of the bag by saying that for Venable, for Ananda is one just like the bhikkhu he's described. He is one who has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and who is a very skillful speaker on the Dhamma. And so then in the case of each of the other monks, the Buddha says the same thing in effect, good, good, and such and such a monk has spoken thus because he himself exemplifies the... Okay, so then after all of the, the monk's own an answers have been rehearsed, and confirmed by the Buddha, Sariputta asks the Buddha, we, we come now to paragraph 17, Sariputta asks the Buddha, Venerable Sir, which of us has spoken well? And the Buddha says, you have all spoken well, Sariputta, each in his own way. And now the Buddha is going to offer his own answer. He says, Hear also from me what kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Hear Sariputta, when a bhikkhu has returned from his alms round, after his meal, he sits down, folds his legs crosswise, sets his body erect, and establishing mindfulness in front of him, he makes the resolution, I shall not break this sitting position until through not clinging, my mind is liberated from the taints. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. <clears throat> I think that there's something interesting about the Buddha's reply here and it differs in some respect from the replies of the other monks. 
Anybody have any idea what the difference is <laughs> between what the Buddha has answered and what the other monks have answered? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The Buddha, like all of the monks, have answered by showing at least maybe there might be some exception in the case of Ananda. Of course, that could be, one could have a very learned monk who's a skillful speaker on the Dhamma who has not yet achieved arhatship, which is like Ananda himself. And our, Ananda doesn't show one who has reached the goal, but all of the others show monks who have achieved, or have already accomplished the goal. But now the Buddha is in a way giving, turning the discourse into a message for the monks who have not yet reached the goal showing what they should really do if they're really completely intent on reaching the goal, which is to sit down at the foot of a tree or in their kuti or in a cave, crossing the legs and making that firm determination not to rise up again until the mind is liberated from the defilement. And also there's something else that strikes me that's maybe significant in the Buddha's reply, and that is that if we remember the story about the account of the Buddha's own enlightenment after he had strived for six years and with the ascetic practices without reaching any attainment, any realization, then he discovered the middle way and took the food the alms food till he regained his strength. Then when he found the seat under the Bodhi tree, when he sat down he made very similar resolution that I'm going to sit down and I'm not going, even he said, even if the flesh and blood of my body dries up till only the skin and bones remain, but I'm not going to break the sitting posture until I have reached the supreme enlightenment. But I think also one has to be a little cautious about the, <laughs> the Buddha's reply and recognize that this instruction is given for those monks who have really matured all of their spiritual qualities, who have the accumulations of paramis and have developed their indriyas, their spiritual faculties to a very, very high level so that they are almost on the verge of enlightenment and really just have to make a very firm determination <laughs> to reach the goal. Otherwise, maybe if you've been doing meditation regularly and you never saw the sutta before, maybe then you go home tonight and you go into your corner or room where you do your meditation and you sit down and think, I'm not going to get up <laughs> until my mind is liberated from the pains. maybe after three or four minutes you're <laughs> wondering what's on television today. <laughs>
lots in the refrigerator. <laughs> Okay, and so that was what the Blessed One said, and the other monks were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And that takes us to the end of this sutta. Okay, are there any questions now on anything that was said either today or in connection with with this entire sutta. Any questions? Okay, if there's no questions, then we will adjourn, adjourn for today. And next week we will start on sutta number 35, that is the Satchika, the shorter discourse to Satchika. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.